Our first scripture reading is from Numbers chapter 14. Last time when we looked at the book of Jude, we read an Old Testament passage that gave us a bit of an idea of the sins of that first generation of Israelites who were brought out of Egypt. And here we have another such passage in Numbers 14. I won't read the whole chapter. It's a fairly long one. Uh, but to give a bit of a, an idea of the problems that the people faced then and uh, their response to God's grace and mercy and his deliverance, not a good response, but we'll read verses 1 to 4 and then verses 20 to 24 from Numbers 14. Firstly, from verse 1, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And then if you turn to verses 20 to 24, and uh, this was after uh, Moses uh, pled for the people that God would not destroy them. So the Lord said, I have pardoned, pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which, which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Would you then turn please to Jude chapter 1, as we continue on this with this uh, short series on the book of Jude. And I'll read the first eight verses. Text for the sermon is verses five to eight. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in, the, in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now our text, through to verse 8. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, 
that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own, their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same manner, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that in our pride we may sometimes resist the guidance, the instruction of your word. We pray that you would break down our resistance progressively and cause us, Father, to be open to hear what your word and spirit have to say to us again today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, as I've uh, often remarked, and especially of late, uh, it does appear that the times in which we live, that this uh, society and this time has become very uncomfortable with anything that appears to them to be confrontational. They just want uh, positive stuff, unless, of course, we're talking about uh, PC outrage. Uh, it's, okay, that's, it's okay to have that. It's okay to be absolutely outraged about something that somebody says if you don't think it's politically correct enough. But for everything else, it has to be tolerant, positive, and uh, accepting of just about anything. And no doubt this is something that affects our churches as well. And one of the ways in which it may affect us is that we uh, may be more inclined to feel uncomfortable with things, uh, passages in Scripture or sermons that focus on judgment. And yet clearly that is what the book of Jude does. There are some, in fact, who say that if you compare what Peter says, especially in chapter 2, which is very much a parallel chapter to this, if you compare what Peter says on the same subject, Jude is so much more harsh, they say. He's so much more oriented towards judgment, harsh judgment, than, he, than even the Apostle Peter. Well, I can assure you I'm not going to try and turn the book of Jude into something it's not. Ending up with some different emphasis on preaching than the very text that I'll be preaching on. It is true that preaching ought to be Christ-centred. But the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed in the Scripture in many different ways, in many different aspects of his person and works. And one aspect is that the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed as the great King who has been appointed to judge this entire world, as well as being revealed as our Saviour. Approximately five-sixths of this book, the book of Jude, contains what we might call negative material. That is to say, it talks about sin and error and judgment. Well, do we know better than the Holy Spirit? 
who has inspired this book for the church of all ages and for Christian people of all ages, including this current one. Two points as we look at this. Three, firstly, three ancient judgments, and then secondly, one current warning. Three ancient judgments and one current warning. In the first place, then, Jude takes three accounts from the Bible, uh, three accounts that were known to his readers. And therefore, he says that he is giving the people reminders. He's reminding them of things that they know very, very well, material from the Bible that they know very well. I desire to remind you, he says, though you know all things. In other words, you know all of the details, all things about these accounts, once for all. These are fixed in your mind, verse 5. I'm not telling you anything new, he says. Now, there are some who believe that Jude isn't actually so much drawing this from the Old Testament or from the Bible, that he's actually leaning more heavily on a, a non-canonical book, a book that isn't in the Bible, known as the Book of Enoch, which was a book of Jewish speculation, uh, allegedly written by Enoch a long, long time ago, but probably actually written in the time between the Old and the New Testament. Or some would argue even later than that. Some even argue that the book was written after the book of Jude and that Jude wasn't drawing on it at all. It maybe drew on Jude and Peter, but uh, no one's 100% sure about that. Certainly there is a similarity of language between Jude and 2 Peter on the one hand and the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch refers to the judgment of the great day. It refers to uh, fiery destruction. It refers to angels deserting their station, uh, covered in eternal darkness and bound in chains. But there is no proof that Jude relied upon that book, or for that matter, that Peter did. As I say, it could be something that was written later and which actually uh, drew upon the language of Peter and Jude. It could be that both the book of Enoch and 2 Peter and Jude have similarity of language because they're all drawing from the same source, the Old Testament, although in addition to that, the book of Enoch then throws in some Jewish speculation to add to that. Or possibly, though I would suggest this is less likely, it could be that uh, Jude was deliberately hooking into a book that was very popular at the time, that's uh, possible, some think that, uh, and he's hooking into the language of it uh, to draw the readers in to deal with things that are true, though not all of the book of Enoch is. Well, we don't know exactly which of these is so, but um, one thing we can say, and that is that we don't need to appeal to the book of Enoch, we don't need to bring that into the picture, because the three accounts that Jude refers to here do come out of the Old Testament. And the first of those is from Israel's history in verse 5. The Old Testament tells us, we don't need the book of Enoch to tell us this, the Old Testament tell us, tells us that the Lord, after he had saved his people Israel, delivered them out of Egypt, that later he destroyed those of that first generation who persistently refused to believe him. And Numbers 14, we read from that to make that point. 
most of that hard-hearted generation was destroyed in the wilderness. And this is, a, this is an important account uh, to bring in at this picture when you're talking about judgment. It's important to bring this one in because this is a reminder that being a member of the covenant community is no guarantee that God will forgive you on the last day if you have kept on sinning and kept on rejecting him and not in your heart truly believed in him and not repented of your sins. And this is not at all to say that those who have been saved by the redeeming work of Jesus Christ can be lost. But it is to say that those who are saved in a lesser sense, in the sense of being delivered out of the hand of the wicked, as was the case of Israel, it is not to deny that they will be later destroyed if they harden their hearts against the Lord. For it is in fact a most terrible insult to the Lord to be, in, even in that sense of being uh, delivered from the hands of the wicked, even if you are saved in that sense only, it is such an insult to the Lord to be rescued by him and then refuse to believe in the one who has rescued you and to refuse to heed the word of the one who has rescued you and to refuse to serve him with gratitude. Well, having dealt with a scenario where men claim to believe but are later destroyed due to their own apostasy, Jude goes to the second scenario. Verse 6, a situation where even creatures who were originally good, perfectly good, could fall and be destroyed. Talking here about angels, those angels who were not content to keep to the, the level of authority that God had given them, that word uh, to keep to their own domain, uh, or it means uh, their rule, the, the authority that God himself had given them, but they weren't happy to stick with that. And God had placed them, their abode was in heaven with him, and they weren't happy to live there. They wanted to shift, to get away from, from that uh, closeness to God. They rebelled against God with Satan leading them. Uh, no doubt a matter of pride. It's uh, inferred from Genesis, uh, say from uh, Genesis 3 verse 5, the kind of temptation that the devil brought to Adam and Eve, that temptation to pride. You can be better than God is letting you be. You can rise to a higher level, re realise your full potential and all that kind of stuff. And don't listen to God. That pride that was in that, it is inferred also that the same kind of motivation of pride lay behind the fall of those angels that went with Satan. But even for such as these, there is judgment. God has kept them in eternal confinement or imprisonment under darkness for that judgment of the great day when the Lord Jesus returns. And Peter also talks about that in 2 Peter 2 verse 4. Now, the book of Enoch, to... Uh, give a bit of contrast here, and uh, I, I say this because if you pick up books or commentaries about the book of Jude, you'll often find this said by even respectable commentators that uh, Jude is saying this stuff about the angels, that he's not getting that from the Old Testament because there's not much in the Old Testament about the fall of angels. He's getting it from the book of Enoch. And the book of Enoch, if uh, you turn to G uh, Genesis chapter 6, and verses 1 to 4. 
I mentioned about uh, Jewish speculation in the book of Enoch. Well, here's an example of it. Just read the first uh, four verses of um, Genesis 6. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And uh, the book of Enoch claims and interprets that uh, what this passage is saying is that uh, fallen angels, demons, mated with human women, and the result was the race of giants. And uh, from that, it is argued that Jude is getting his idea that the sin of the angels was not only pride, but also lust, lust for these human women. Now, this is actually a, a preposterous interpretation. Angels are not physical beings. They do not beget children with human women. And Genesis 6 does not in any way mean that. No, the fallen angels are just mentioned here as another proof that no matter how good and great you think you are, if you rebel against the Lord without repentance, you will be destroyed. And Jude didn't need the book of Enoch to deduce that. Isaiah 24 verses 21 and 22 states that on the day of judgment, the Lord will punish the host of heaven, in other words, those of it who have rebelled, along with the kings of the earth, and they will all be confined in prison, waiting that final judgment, in other words. Similar language to what we find in the book of Jude. But that is a, a better source than uh, Genesis 6, as uh, what Jude is referring to. Third example is that of the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, Admar and Zeboim. A case not of covenant people who turned away from the Lord, not of good angels who fell, but of unbelievers who are already wicked from the start but turned to even greater depravity, even greater levels of wickedness, filling up the measure of their wickedness and so were destroyed, as Genesis 19 describes. Their sin is described here as not just immorality, but gross immorality. And going after strange, uh, the word means different flesh. Uh, verse 7. And in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, obviously that sin was homosexuality uh, combined with the threat of violence and a refusal to uh, uphold the guest and look after a guest in the city, or guests. Uh, and so uh, this, is a very, this is described here as gross immorality, and it is also described as uh, strange or different flesh. And there's a huge argument about that, which I won't go into now. Uh, some people say that this terminology, strange flesh, 
uh, isn't referring to homosexuality as such. Um, it could be meaning uh, just the fact that the angels were foreigners, they were visitors, they were different in that sense. Uh, but um, uh, we, there could be other ways of understanding that uh, strange or different in that this is not what God gave man for marriage uh, in the beginning. It was to be male and female. Uh, strange in that they were not married either, so it was outside of marriage. Uh, so there's a number of different ways of understanding that. But whichever way you understand it, the fact remains that it is put forward here as a gross immorality, one that brought down judgment, and there should be no doubt about that. So in the case of Israel, what we have here, what we have with Israel is idolatry, immorality, and a refusal to listen to the Lord and to believe in him and to trust him, all part of their rebellion. In the case of the angels, we have that which began with pride, and discontent, and that was the form of their rebellion, though once the angels fell, of course, that led to all manner of inciting to evil on their part, as the uh, demonic forces today still try to lead people, Christians and others, in, into all manner of evil. But what is common to all three cases is the situation where a creature becomes hardened in sin and refuses to repent and therefore is or will be judged and destroyed. And so when we read these words just as in verse 7, this doesn't mean that the sins in every one of those three cases are exactly the same. They're not all in the same form, but it means the pattern is the same. The pattern that unrepented sin brings judgment. Thus, the stress falls, what is uh, exhibited as an example, verse 7, the stress falls on those cities of the plain undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The fire that rained down on them left them permanently wiped off the face of the map, but that was a picture of the eternal fire awaiting the wicked in hell. Just as the fallen angels are kept in eternal bonds for judgment. And just as the unbelieving part of that original generation from the Exodus were destroyed. And these are examples which the scripture often cites, uh, the New Testament as well. 1 Corinthians 10 makes a big point of the um, unbelieving, the behavior of unbelieving Israel and how we learn from that as a church today. Uh, Matthew 10 verse 15 uses Sodom and Gomorrah, and Matthew 25 verse 41 refers to the fallen angels, to mention just a few examples, a few verses, of passages that make use of these, these accounts from the Old Testament, urging sinners to repent while there is still time. Now, in each of these New Testament passages, using the ancient, ancient judgments as an example, an application is made to people in New Testament times, a current application. 1 Corinthians 10 uses Israel's apostasy as a warning to the church and to Christian people in Corinth. 
Matthew 10 verse 15 uses Sodom and Gomorrah as a warning to those uh, unbelieving Jews who rejected the gospel when the twelve went out to proclaim Christ uh, to the cities of Israel. And Matthew 25 verse 41 uses the judgment on the fallen angels as a warning to anyone who on the last day will claim that they knew the Lord but did not show by their lives and by their fruit that they truly knew him from the heart. And Jude too uses these three ancient accounts to bring one current warning, our second and final point. Jude's current warning is to the false teachers, these men mentioned in verse 8, who are in fact uh, essentially doing the same things as these ancient cases of rebellion. They too are those who defile the flesh, which means that they, they stain or they pollute the flesh with their immorality, as Israel did at Baal Peor, like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah did. And uh, perhaps, as I mentioned last time, uh, the reason this is drawn attention to is because the false teachers were saying, it doesn't matter whether you sin. And in fact, it's actually good to sin. Whatever you do with the body, that's fine. The, at the most, you'll be just showing up how gracious God is when he forgives you, so you might as well sin all the more, or something along those lines. These false teachers are also described as those who reject authority. Uh, literally, it says, those who despise lordship and could therefore be referring to those who despise the lordship of Christ, those who despise the lordship of God, those who despise the authority of his word and those who despised the authority of the apostles he had appointed to ground the church in the truth. Just as the wicked in Israel refused to listen to their God-appointed authority, the great prophet and mediator of the Old Testament, Moses. And just as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah refused to listen to Lot, despite what he said to them and the witness he gave. And just as the angels who fell refused to listen to God. And these false teachers are described as those who revile angelic glories. And that's actually an interpretation because uh, the words literally read those who are uh, blaspheming or reviling glories. The word angel isn't mentioned there. And therefore this too may well refer not to the glory of the angels, it could do that, but it could refer to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glories of Christ, the glories of God, the glories of his word, or possibly of those angelic messengers he sent in Bible times. And they are described as dreamers, which uh, we probably, it's possible that we can understand this in the way that we use this expression today. If someone's losing touch with reality and they're uh, accepting something that's really uh, should be out of the question and it's quite fantastical, uh, and we might say to them, <laughs> you must be dreaming. It could be meant in that sense, or it may be a reference to the fact that these people were claiming that they had revelatory dreams in order to back up their false heresies. 
Well, we can see from all of this, there, is, uh, there are a lot of negative examples given here in Jude, described using a lot of negative terms. Rebellion in Israel, rebellion in heaven, wicked unbelievers, and members of the New Testament church who had given themselves over to error and sin. But why is all of this piled up in this book? As we saw last time, because it was necessary to deal with a threat that existed in the church at that time from the false teachers. And as I mentioned last time, that is also something that we need to deal with today in our current situation. A situation in which many churches have drifted from the truth, and if they don't teach error, in which they may simply tolerate all kinds of error and sin. A situation in which our churches also have to deal with instances of such things, with immorality, which occurs in our churches, and sometimes even gross immorality, certainly with pride and discontent, with anti-authoritarianism, people who feel that they can do what they like, no matter what the, the, uh, the rules and the teachings of our churches may be. And we also face the temptation to go easy on such things. But there are three lessons in particular that I want to draw to your attention. Three things that come out of this text which will encourage us, they ought to encourage us, to stand firm upon God's word. Which is, after all, what Jude is aiming at here. That the, his readers remain steadfast and take their stand upon God's word. The first of these comments is to note that if we go easy on such things, then we risk, in effect, giving our members a helping hand into a kind of situation that may result in the end in the same kind of judgments that we read about here. If we love uh, each other as Christian brethren, then we ought to be doing everything that we can in the fear of God and with every bit of energy that we have to warn those who stray into error and sin, to warn them against that position. And if we don't do that, we not only risk individuals going off on their own sweet way without anybody giving them their, that warning and reminding them of what they've read from the scripture, but we also risk that the number of such people grow, should grow, would grow in a church that tolerates those things and does not speak out that more and more then we would find that kind of behaviour uh, occurring in the church and in its members. Second, there is this warning here that even covenant members will face such judgment if we turn from the Lord and refuse to repent. Even, as I said earlier, those creatures, angels who were originally perfect were not immune when they turned against the Lord. Neither were his covenant people. And the key there is repentance. Even gross immorality can be repented of. The power of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and the infinite depth of God's mercy is so great that it can cover even the worst of sins. 
but not if you do not turn and keep turning to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. No sin is too great for him, but hard-hearted apostasy is therefore all the more horrendous in view of such grace. And then the third uh, comment I want to make about this is that we see here that evil, evil's apparent triumph. You look around at the world today and you say, it kind of looks like the forces of evil are winning. Taking over society, crushing the church and silencing her. In some places more than others, to be sure. But we see from this text that that is only for a time. In the time of the Exodus, the righteous were outnumbered. It was just about the whole of that first generation who were destroyed. And it was even worse in the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah and so on. Wickedness seemed to have the upper hand. It seemed that the wicked could do whatever they liked and they could get away with it. And what was the Lord doing about it? That was the question that could no doubt come to the mind of the faithful, as perhaps today it comes to our minds as we see what's going on in formerly Christian countries, so-called, including New Zealand. But we do see what the Lord does about it. And we see what he will do about it, and it's plain in this book. There is never any upper hand over God. The apparent triumph of evil is short-lived from his perspective. And it ends in a terrifying judgment at the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what we have to warn people around us about, as well as warning ourselves. Uh, even though it will enrage the wicked to be told that, to, for us to speak about judgment, sin and judgment, it will enrage them. But it is not just a matter of warning them about judgment. Also, what we do with that is that we proclaim the alternative. We proclaim a grace that is more than big enough to cover any sin and a grace that is also strong enough to allow us to stand in and with him, with the Lord Jesus and in him, rather than to fall under that judgment on his great day. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would keep us from presuming on our covenant membership as if that in itself covers all our sins. Father, would you cause us to look to the Lord Jesus as the ground of our salvation and of our forgiveness? And would you cause us to examine ourselves so that we may more effectively resist sin and error in our lives? Will you help us also to be vigilant for anything in our churches that might lead some astray in a different direction, both in our own lives personally and also in our congregations, especially in our own congregation. But we also pray that you would help us to see your work in our midst and uh, not to become negative and pessimistic overall, but to see evidence of your work in our midst, of your mercy and the power of your work in your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
The day of judgment is a day of terror to the rebellious, but it is a day of wonders to those who know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hymn 370 will stand to sing, and would you remain standing, please, for the blessing and doxology. 370. After the blessing is our doxology, we sing number 282, stanzas 1 and 3 in the Psalter hymnal. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> 